Before you're seated, we invite you to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, though it will seem like a strange passage to turn to for uh, on this Thanksgiving weekend, we will be seeing the mercy of God even to the undeserving in this chapter. So we'll see not only Ahab and his evil and his sin, but we'll also see the mercy of the great God that we serve as we go through the chapter. 1 Kings chapter 21, <clears throat> I want to read for you verses 1 through 5. 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you will guide our hearts, help us to see the evil of sin. But Father, may we also see in bold relief the majesty and mercy and the justice of God Almighty. Teach us, Father, to see you, even in this story. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Now, throughout the chapter, this basically is a, an eight-part chapter, and so lest you worry, are worried about it, they go fast, the points are fast. And yet we look at it from the perspective of Ahab, first of all. Ahab is rebuffed. We see that in verses 1 through 3. We'll see him displeased in 4 through 5. We see him ridiculed in verses 6 and 7, then misused and yet represented in verses 8 through 14. Then we see him earn his guilt in verses 15 and 16, sentenced in verses 17 through 24, reviewed in verse 25 through 26, and finally, repentance, repentant in verses 27 through 29. Some of it can relate to us in the fact that sin is certainly a part of all of us. We were born and concluded in sin because of Adam and Eve. There is that sin that came from our forefathers, and that sin nature works its way down through every one of us born of a woman. All of us human beings have the sin nature plugged into us. It's a part of who we are. And one of the glories of heaven is that removal of not only um, the sin around us, but certainly that presence of sin and then the effect of sin in our lives. That's what heaven is all about. That's the glory of heaven. But until then, we have to reckon with sin and what it means and certainly pay a price for it. And that's what we find with Ahab. He will pay a huge price and God's justice will not be um, short-circuited. God is a just God. It's interesting to try to look back through phrases and terms that have worked their way into our society. One of the phrases is that the mill of God grinds slowly, but it grind, grinds exceeding fine. And that's not just a Christian concept. It's something that went back way into even Greek uh, times where Greek writers would say something about the gods. And yet it's an understood thing. We'll hear preachers talk about it today. You know, that God, 
often withholds his justice and judgment, and it makes us sometimes fall asleep and think that, well, God's uh, not going to swiftly judge, and so I can do as I please. Uh, one of the interesting statements that Pink brings out, um, A.W. Pink, in his study, is the first couple of paragraphs as he begins to look at the section of Ahab and what was going on. He comes to this passage where in the middle of our story, Ahab goes and takes this vineyard that his wife had gotten through evil ways and through criminal behavior. It says, It came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, and Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it, 1 Kings 20, 16. He said, The coveted object, from verse 2, should now be seized. Its lawful owner was dead, brutally murdered by Ahab's acquiescence. And being king, who was there to hinder him, enjoying his ill-gotten gain? Picture him, delighting himself in his new acquisition, planning how to use it to best advantage, promising himself much pleasure in its extension of the palace grounds. To such lengths are men allowed to go in their wickedness that at times onlookers are made to wonder if there be such a thing as justice, if after all it might not, it might not be right. Surely, if there were a God who loved righteousness and possessed the power to prevent flagrant unrighteousness, we should not witness such grievous wrongs inflicted upon the innocent and such triumphing of the wicked. Ah, that is no new problem, but one which has recurred again and again in the history of this world, a world which lieth in the wicked one. It is one of the mystery elements arising out of the conflict between good and evil. It supplies one of the severest tests of our faith in God and his government on this earth. Well written. Don't we think that way? God's mill grinds exceedingly slow, but it grinds exceedingly fine. God does prevail. He is just. And one of those interesting challenges for believers is to tell a lost world that, yes, evil will be destroyed. It will be conquered and vanquished. But they say, well, how come not now? And we may say the same thing too. But we must never forget 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish, that all might come to repentance. And so there is a mercy in God. And though we've looked at this outline and we've seen this list of things that go on in the recounting of what happened in Ahab's life, do not forget the role of God in all of this. God was involved. Now, we don't understand what Naboth's death uh, seemed so senseless and what it was there to prevail and prove. And yet, Naboth was probably one of those 700 that God had told Elijah about. He was one that had not bowed the knee to Baal. He was not going to give up easily. He was going to follow God's law. And yet there would be a price to pay for standing up for truth. But God's worth it, isn't he? Amen, Christians? He is. There is going to be a price that you and I pay for knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. But we need to trust the nature of God. God's nature is that which pursued you before you knew of him. It's God's nature that pursued you in his great love through his work of grace in loving you to himself when you were unlovely, when I was unlovely. It's interesting that as we grow older in the faith, and one of the beauties of thanksgiving for a Christian is to be able to look back over your life, and though you're not proud of the evil that you have done, you are amazed at God's grace that pursued you before you knew him. That's thanksgiving. And that's what allows us to pray for our children, pray for others who do not know Christ as Savior, that God is the pursuer of hearts. Because he's the pursuer of hearts, there's a lot of ugliness and sin, but God's mercy is great. 
It's higher than the heavens. It's renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What a great God we serve. And so though Naboth's life was forfeit and that of his sons, yet God was going to see to it that his blood was avenged. God did that. God takes care of that. And that is the story of Ahab, this unrepentant, unregenerate king of northern Israel as he led in evil and allowed evil to prevail. He's rebuffed in the first few verses. It came to pass after these things. Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. You know, a kind of king like that, you'd want to be far away. But that was not Naboth's lot. As remember, all faithful Jews understood that God gave them the land that they had by lot. It was God's gift. And because it was God's gift and given to them, and it was worth living for, and it was worth dying for. It was that which was unalienable. Now, if they had to give it up for a period of time because of debt, there was a thing called Jubilee, where the land was returned after 50 years to the original owners if they hadn't had the ability to buy it back. It was given back to the family or the descendants. God's gift is something that is not taken away, so to speak. God's salvation, it's not something you can lose. God is a gracious God. And when God gives to the, to the faithful Jewish person, the believer in that era in the Old Testament, his land, it was something to be treasured, even though it was right next to Ahab's palace. So Ahab could get up every morning and look out, whether this was his summer palace or whatever, and look out and see this beautiful piece of property right next to his property. And he, in his scheming and conniving way, is thinking, you know, I'd like to have that. Boy, how nice that would be. I'd like to, what vegetables could I grow? The vineyard could be cleared away, turned into a vegetable plot. I could have fresh tomatoes, fresh broccoli, fresh, have I lost all the kids yet? Beans, green beans. How about wax beans, right? You think in terms of the vegetables that he would enjoy and enjoy through the year. He would look out there across that that uh, field, and he would say, that would be lovely. I'd love to have it. So he turns to Naboth, speaks to him in verse 2. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than that. I can give you something better. I have these other things. I'll trade you. A good swap, a good trade. And if that's not good enough, I'll give you, I'll buy it from you. Whatever it takes, I want that land. Naboth, who loved God, said, no, I can't do that. It would be going against God's blessing. We count it as a treasure. It is from God. It's not worth any price. Believers, there are people in this world who think every man has his price. There are people in this world who think you can be bought, you can be bribed, you can be cajoled. They know your price. They keep a record of who you are and what you have given into in the past. They think that every human being has his price, and so they think they have control of you. Believers, you must not ever have a price, for your price has been set by Christ. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You must not be bought any other way. It is a lesson of Naboth's life. It is a lesson for all of us to take a moment and think about do not have a price apart from the fact that Jesus Christ died for you. His blood was shed. That gives you your value. Your price is really far above rubies, isn't it? You're worth what Christ gave, and that's why he purchased you. 
You've been bought with a price. Your body is not your own. It's a, it is a temple of God. Remember that. Naboth could not be bought. And it's to his, to his credit as a believer, verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, this is the king. This is a bad king. This is one you don't want for a neighbor. He turns to Ahab and says, the Lord forbid, the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went to his house. But that's not all he did. Back when my kids were little, there was uh, Ron Hamilton put together a bunch of, uh, of musical tapes. And one of the things he did, he picked up on this little section. And he wrote a song that was called The Poochie Lip Disease. So if some of you remember that, it was about uh, Ahab, you know, getting the poochie lip disease. And you know what it is, moms. You know, you tell your kids no. And what does her lip do? Starts to come out like that. So here we find Ahab doing the poochie lip disease thing. Off he goes to his house, turns his face to the wall. And, and there he is, not even eating any food. I'm, okay, I'm going to take all my toys and go home. I don't want to do any of this stuff. I'm going to pout. Pouty people. You know, Ahab becomes a powder. And you think in terms of this, this king, who, a king is like this? Of course, his wife has no respect for it, of course. You'll see that in a moment. But here he is. He lies down on his bed, turns his face to the wall, and would eat no food. Why do people do that? Let me ask you this, young people. Why do you get pouty? Why does it happen? Well, we want attention, usually. I just want somebody to pay attention, and I want to get my way. And when I can't get my way, I'm going to make you pay. And so I'm going to turn my face to the wall, and there I go. That's the pouty, poochy lip disease. And there was Ahab with his face to the wall. You can just pick. A grown man is doing this. Well, a grown boy is doing that. And you know, it's interesting to see this picture that his wife is going to run into. We see this in the next verse. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him. Now, Jezebel is no wonderful woman. She is a miserable curmudgeon. She is a person who hates good in any way, shape, or form. We gave you a word last week, right? Tarmigant, remember? It's a, she's, she was a hellion. She was a harridan. She was awful. All those words that describe somebody who would like to beat you over the head with your mistakes and your failures. And that's what she's going to do here. Why is your spirit so sullen that you'll eat no food? Now, I wonder if he's done this before. Because she doesn't seem to be that terribly shocked. She just wants to know the reason. And she turns to him and says, he said to her, and here's how he explains it, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else... If it pleases you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Now, is that true? Yes, on the surface. Did he tell the whole story? No, not at all. Believers, doesn't it just tear your heart out when someone recounts what you have done for God in integrity and they miss the truth? That's what happened to Naboth. Here he's telling his wife that this guy just said, no, I'm not going to do this. But I offered him all these things, and he said, no, I, I can't believe it. He, every man's got a price, but he didn't have one. No, Naboth's statement was, God forbid, I cannot do this thing. I have no option. The unsaved world will never understand that, Christians. Never. They don't understand vibrant life with Christ where you cannot let him down. They can't understand that. Don't have a price. Your price has been set by Christ. 
But the world won't understand that unless God, by His power, opens their eyes to see that you live because Christ gave you life. So he doesn't explain it to her. Verse 7, here's what she does. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Its emphasis in the New King James is appropriate because the word you is first. It's that emphatic thing. <laughs> You're the king. Wait a minute, Ahab. Aren't you the king? Is this the way a king works? Is this the way the king operates in Israel? If he says no, is that how it's supposed to be? So she said to him, Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And he doesn't ask her, how are you going to do that? What kind of a husband was that? Ahab blew it. He was going to become complicit in his wife's maneuvering and engineering and sin. And when you look at the list of things she does, she breaks law after law after law, not only of, God, of man, but of God. She perjures people. She murders. She is one who's envious and she misrepresents. And she is also someone who says, I'm the king making this decision. And he lets it all happen. He will take of the fruit of her sin and therefore begin, uh, takes on himself the same punishment or the same, the same error from God as he describes it. Verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name. Here she was forging, sealed them with his seal. He had to let her have the seal. She couldn't just take it. And sent the letters to the elders and nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. Elders and nobles. Will you think about the places where evil could have been stopped? There's going to be evil that's going to happen. Naboth is going to lose his life and his kids too and his land is going to be stolen. And what's going to happen is Ahab could have said, no, I won't give you the seal. I don't know how you're going to do this. Maybe you're going to go and try to sweet talk him into giving up the land. He didn't even bother to ask. But what he did was he became someone who let it go. Then the elders and those who were the leaders of the city, the important people of the city, they let it go. They were complicit too. They apparently were close enough to the palace and they knew which side of the bread the butter was on that they weren't going to make waves and they let it go. They could have stopped the evil, but they did not. They could have said no, but isn't it awful when you live in a land where people who are over you are complicit to let those others allow evil to prevail? It's a terrible state in a land. It's a picture of the state of Israel, isn't it, in that day? And that which God was dealing with, Elijah was dealing with. And so they let this happen too. She wrote in the letter saying, proclaim a fast. A fast. It wasn't a feast. It was a fast. What that means is, her, in her maneuvering, she was going to make it sound spiritual. She's going to say that there has been a great evil that has taken place in this city. And because of that great evil, the city needs to turn and be repentant because of the evil. And that evil has got to be found out. Proclaim a fast. Fasts took place because godly people said, why have we sinned? What is the sin that God is bringing judgment upon this land for? And therefore, we will seek out the answer to that. And until God gives a satisfactory answer, we're going to be in repentance. We're going to humble ourselves before God. We're going to put aside the food that we would normally eat so that we can pursue God's face. Christians, there are times 
where our need for the presence of God and speaking with Him requires that we spend time in God's presence and we forget food, we forget other things because God is important to us and that answer from the Lord is important. She makes it sound spiritual. Proclaim a fast. And in the middle of the fast, this is what sin does, isn't it? It makes, it tries to paint a good thing, uh, an awful thing as a good thing. Proclaim a fast, then seat Naboth with high honor among the people. Oh, how evil. How evil. And seat two men who are scoundrels, sons of Belial. Here are people who could be bought, people who are the lowest of the low. They were going to be misrepresenting Naboth. They were going to lie in collusion so that good could be defeated. Seat these two scoundrels before him to bear witness against him. Isn't it something how evil has a tendency to find the, the most cheap ways of defaming the character of a godly person? It finds a way of taking that which is stellar and brings it down into the mud. And those who are accused are, are not even worth the, the, the sweeping the ground over which Naboth would work. Those accusers are the ones who tear his name up and they're not anybody anybody would trust. But the law does say in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let a thing be established in the Old Testament. And the Lord even quotes that. And here's what they accuse him of. Of course, I can only picture Naboth, by the way, coming to this public fast, not even having a clue why this would be. Why are we being brought here? But we're going to find out the answer. And then close by him, why are these two guys real close? I mean, I wouldn't want them near me, but here they are, and they're right in his presence, and all of a sudden, here's what they do. They claim, you have blasphemed God and the king. Those two claims were horrendous. One, no Jew should be blaspheming God, taking his name in vain, let alone uh, disobeying God, let alone saying that God is not the God of the heaven. No believer would want to do that. How much of a heartbreak must that have been for Naboth? Not only that, the king as well. You blasphemed the king. How? Because he didn't sell his land. In other words, his side of the story didn't come out. Ahab's Puchy lip disease story came out. He said, no, I can't have it. How dare you say the king can't have that? What are you talking about? And because it was put in, cast in the terms of blasphemy, he was to be stoned to death. Not only him, but his kids as well. Second Kings chapter 9 indicates that his sons were also uh, slain so that there would be no inheritors. Well, look at the list of things that Jezebel's sin uh, included. You find hypocrisy. You find slander. You find uh, uh, murder. You find uh, pretending to be spiritual. You find all of these terms in her forgery. That's ugly stuff. Sin, of course, is ugly. You look at this and you see Ahab wanting something. There's covetousness there. He desires something so badly that he's willing to take advantage of the maneuvering of his wife. The ugliness of his wife's heart is seen. But then there's also this, this um, picky unheart of, of Ahab's. That's just, it, it, it's just um, hardened. It is all selfish, it's all focused on him, and it's not willing to look at anything that has to do with spiritual issues or cares or concerns. It tells us something about sin in our own lives. 
You know, we've tried to illustrate sin in the past as being something like a plant. Of course, there's a root, there's the stalk, and there's the fruit. And when you think in terms of the way he behaved, there is the root of selfishness. Selfishness seems to be the root of all sins. Almost every sin you can think of has this taproot like a dandelion that goes deep. And there are times when you try to cut that top off and change this behavior, but that taproot of selfishness is still there. Think about Satan himself. I will be like the Most High. And he was grasping after being like God. Selfishness. Wanted to pull God down. Wanted to make himself like God. Think in terms of almost every sin that we've ever committed. Why would you lie? Well, because of something to do with selfishness. You want to look better than what somebody might think? You're concerned about what's going on inside. There's this root of bitterness that can come from that as well. Bitterness often is because of selfishness. You think about almost every single sin that others will point out to us. The ones we become aware of. And somewhere there's a taproot of selfishness there. Pride comes from that, doesn't it? That selfishness grows into that, that plant of pride. There is a plant of pride that, that, um, that, that seems to grow out of that selfishness. And as that pride grows, as it begins to, to uh, act upon that selfishness, you find selfish behavior just called sin, whether it's those sins in the list we looked at in Sunday school, um, in the men's class, they were going through a list of sins that related to pride and behaviors. You know, the sinful plant that everybody sees can sometimes be cut off by the lawnmower, but it's still got that root that keeps pushing its way up until it's dug out, until God deals with it. Sinful behaviors could be the habits we get into, can be the thoughts we have, it can be the attractiveness to it. It was interesting to see this last week, or it was actually today, Betsy pointed out a story where an HVAC company went into a house in California. As they're putting in the air conditioning system, uh, the guy was going below the floorboards, and as he opened up the floorboards, this guy who was putting in the system found, I think it was 12 baby food jars filled with gold dust. So he found the gold dust under the floor, and, and, and in his statement, one of the paragraphs, he says, I thought for just a second that I could keep it, but then that wouldn't be right. You know, there was, there was the selfishness there, but it got cut off, so you didn't see the sinful act. He turned around and handed it to the family. It was just uh, one of those things. I guess in the past he's found other stuff, but this was gold dust in California from who knows when and where, how long ago. But the selfishness, the root says that you could have that, and you say, ah. I could. The question is, what do you do with that dandelion sprout that wants to come up? Are you going to keep it? Are you going to obey you going to, your, your own sin and self? Or is it going to be cut off? Is that going to be dug out and removed? Of course, then that life of sin brings forth all of the prideful acts that come from that and the prideful hurt and the thing that leads to the poochy lip disease. Ahab had the root, he had the behaviors, and then you have the pride. And that pride is what he acts upon after the property is taken away. Look at verse 11. So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who were inhabitants of this city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and king. They took him outside the city, stoned him with stones so that he died 
And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. It came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. Well, wait a minute, Jezebel, how did that happen? How did that happen? He doesn't do that. What does he do? Pride comes from the life, which comes from the selfish root. Verse um, 16, So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up, went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. In the act of taking hold of the possession of that property, he as well was earning the sin and, the, and the, um, the penalty that came with it. He earned the penalty that God was going to bring. Now, God cannot be mocked. He never will be. God keeps an account of sin. He keeps an account of what sin looks like and what it's all about. And so look at verse 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria, there he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. This is the sentence against sin that God brings. God is just. He will not fail. Though some people think that God acts slowly, God's acting slowly is often because he's merciful. But God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked by sin. We find that Ahab earns his guilt. He receives his sentence, beginning at verse 17. Look at verse 20. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He used to call him the troubler of Israel. Now he calls him his enemy. Why? Ahab's not born again. He's not a child of God. Ahab is a, a feckless king who allowed his wife to do terrible things in his name. And he accepted those things as coming from his name. Then he accepts this vineyard, which was gotten in an ill-gotten way through blood. And so he calls Elijah his enemy. Isn't that what happens with an unsaved world that wants to accuse you as a believer of all kinds of atrocities that you know in the integrity of your heart are not true? They call you the enemy. You, like Naboth, know the taste of that word. Verse 20 as well, and he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, you do not have a price except the blood of Christ if you're a believer. When a believer turns around and sins, you're selling yourself. That's called slavery, remember, to do what sin would dictate. And sin is always around us. We understand the root of sin now, the plant of sin, and also the puffballs of sin, a pride that seemed to just blow everywhere and get us into the troubles that we get into. God would have us dig out that selfishness and recognize where selfishness is poking its ugly head up. You know, right now you can look out on your lawn you don't see a dandelion in sight. Springtime's coming. Just the right time, you'll see them. Early on, that green plant will pop up, and you need to dig them out of your lawn because they're there. Christians, 
Selfishness is there too. Sometimes people, I used to be confused at this when I'd study up on, on different things and try to learn how to counsel with them. One of them was the idea of suicide. And at first it was really hard for me to understand how suicide is actually a sinful, selfish thing. I used to think, how is that selfish? When you think about it, they're not thinking of anybody else. It comes from that root. And then that's true of every other sin in our life. Why we lie, why we steal. I want that. Covetousness. The uh, Bible says covetousness, which is as the sin of, of idolatry. You've got this whole idea that God hates these things because they're opposed to the very nature of God. Pride in the things God does, it's actually rejoicing and thankfulness. But in pride in the things we do, it's a root of selfishness. It's where it comes from. That there's a huge difference in trying to figure out why you do things for yourself um, as a believer, and why you do th things for yourself as a sinner. The reason we're supposed to do things for ourselves as a believer, like brush your teeth in the morning, young people, wash your hands, it's doing something for yourself, but it's also for others too. Why do you do that? It's not a sinful thing. It's a good thing. It's because it's not opposed to the nature of God. The selfish things that are opposed to the nature of God, that's sin. The things that are things you do for yourself, like eating breakfast because you're hungry, that gives you the ability to obey God and serve Him. And you're thankful for those things God has given. So don't play the mind game of not wanting to do anything for yourself at all. The things that are opposed to God's nature, that's sin. The things that are not opposed to His nature, but the way He designed you, that's appropriate. Rejoicing in friends, it's not selfish. God gave you that gift. Rejoicing in family, that's not selfish. Pride in the fact that God has raised a family to honor God or raised somebody, a friend, to come and bring you the gospel or an encouragement. The joy in the Lord because He's given you a glorious day. Those are things which are thanksgiving. Those are appropriate, acceptable. And giving praise to the Lord because of what He has done for you is an acceptable sacrifice of praise. But if it's against God's nature, which is what sin is, that's that pride of heart, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All those things that bring us and draw us away from God's presence. So God tells Ahab, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and from Israel and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. The Lord gives a little insight here about why he says these things. Verse 26 and uh, 25 and 26, and there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. This guy didn't learn a lesson that was godly at all in his life. And yet, look at this. An unbeliever. Verse 27, so it was when Ahab heard these words, those words that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his body, fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about mourning. Even an unsaved person can have a sense of impending doom, of judgment. 
And you know, there have been times when people have said, well, you know, an unsaved person, even praying isn't good for him to do. Yeah, the Bible does say prayer of the unsaved is an abomination to God. But God also tells us that in his judgment for eternity, as he opens up the books in the book of Revelation, he will look at the books of lives and the books of beliefs that they had, and he will evaluate, what did you know of what I tell you in the law, and how did you respond? And so there are degrees of punishment even in hell. So God in his mercy does not punish all alike in hell. Punish, yes. And so there is a benefit for an unsaved person to actually humble themselves before God, though they may never get saved. God does notice what an amazing, merciful God that he would take note of Ahab. Verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days in the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Now, Ahab already is going to die for what he has done in the chapter before that we saw. Here, there is repentance. And though there is not repentance unto salvation, there is still a mercy of God. Is it important for an unsaved person to try to be good? Yes, absolutely. Though they're not saved. If somebody says to you, why should I be good if God's not going to bring me into his kingdom in heaven? You still have an illustration in scripture that God knows. God does care about his creation. He doesn't love them as, as a redeemed person. But there is that mercy of God, even to those who are not going to come to know him as Savior. One of the mercies of God that he brings to an unsaved person is the fact that he gets to know a Christian. He gets to have that, that um, encouragement, that challenge, that sharpening that comes from knowing somebody of integrity. Somebody who doesn't have a price. Even an unsaved partner, spouse in a home. Um, will have that, that purifying that comes from a saint who lives as a saint before them. Believers, there's a value to standing for Christ. There's a value for good laws in a nation, even though a nation may not be born again. There's a value for churches to stand up for truth, even though there might seem to be nobody listening. Because God does have mercy, even on unsaved people. Not a mercy to let them into heaven, but a mercy that certainly recognizes when there's a humbling of heart. So that's what we see here. I want to give you just a few things to think about as we meditate and, uh, before the Lord and worship Him as we bow before Him in the next few moments. Charles Swindoll puts it this way as he looks at this passage of Scripture. He says, one, there is an end to patience. No one knows when that end is. There is an end to God's patience. Nobody knows when that end is. Number two, God keeps His promise. No one ever stops it. Can't stop it. Number three, God acknowledges humility. No one should refuse it. Good points as we look at Ahab's life. I want to encourage you that God does display patience and he waits, but that patience will end. And so there will be pride that brings a fall. Great will be the destruction that comes with it. Also remember the picture of the dandelion, the taproot of selfishness that rises into the acts of sin that has the little puffballs of pride that cause all the trouble. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? Part of our lives as well. Covetousness, as we see in Ahab's life, is something that will bring dissatisfaction with even the good things God has given you. You need to deal with covetousness in your life. If you find it raising its ugly head, it needs to be removed or you will not have joy in what God gives you today.
the good things that God has given in your life. Also want to encourage you this way. Behold the mercy of God and consider God has been merciful in giving you one more Sunday to walk with Him. How are you using that day for His glory? Are you honoring Him? Are you living for Him? If the Lord returns tonight, is there something you have left undone that you should do because of this day of mercy? God is a merciful God. That's why you're born again. That's why you get the privilege of holding the Bible in your hands. God is merciful. Let us rejoice in that mercy. I want to give you a moment or two to bow. Speak to the Lord about your heart's needs and worship Him. Father, thank you for this recounting of the life of Ahab and Elijah's interaction with him. Also, thank you too for reminding us that Elijah was one who, though he had his troubles, was not finished in your use, and you used him just as you had before. So many lessons in this chapter, such richness. I pray that you'll touch a life with the truth. If there's one without Jesus as Savior, may they see that your mercy is the reason why they still have the next breath. Father, I pray that you'll help them come to know you as Lord and Savior and not be like Ahab. I pray as well for believers that you will allow us to recognize the greatness and sufficiency of our God and see the patience of God and understand his endurance is that which leads people to salvation. May we be able to articulate that. May we remember that we are not to have a price in the world's eyes. We're to be standing for truth no matter what the cost. And Father, may we remember that you will prevail. You cannot lose. And you are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.